Hi, welcome back to Make Do. I'm Julia Scott, and today I am joined by Kay Tempest Bradford, who is a writer, teacher, and podcaster. Uh, or how do you title yourself? Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Also, I'm a freelance adventuress. Ooh, I love it. It feels <laughs> it feels feels very pyramidy. <laughs> that's me, just climbing pyramids and stuff. Yeah, so you have a podcast on Relay called Originality, which you host with Aline Sims. And it's about sort of, you know, a, a kind of an, another part of the spectrum that, that this podcast is on. It's about like, you know, creativity and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Where where did that come from? Well, Aline had the idea for that one. And because she wanted to have a podcast where we jokingly were like, okay, it's going to be a podcast where we ask people, where do your ideas come from? Because every <laughs> creative person loves that question. Um, but really what we've been trying to get at is like, what are the things that are happening in artists' backgrounds, whether it's like their life experience or their education experience or what they've been exposed to or whatever, that that then becomes core to what they produce eventually as creative people. Um, because they're spider bites sort of. Yeah. Because, you know, it's it's different for everybody, obviously. But also there's the thing where it's it's good to know that you are not, you don't have to have a particular background. You don't have to have a particular education or experience in order to create great art because everybody's like comes from all these different places. And you also kind of don't have to be like locked in to either your reason or where maybe your background quote unquote should take you. Exactly. Exactly. Because like the thing that I love um, when we interview people and we explore this stuff is finding out that, you know, somebody who is, say, a game designer, the the core of how they got to into game designing and, and what makes them a great game designer is because they uh, studied to be a lawyer for five years. And you're like, what? what, what? <laughs> but but it's it's things like that, that that we've been discovering. So and I love exploring that. Like, I love just exploring what it is that that bubbles up because it's always coming from like all these really different cool places so yeah i love that before we get to to your spider bite do you think of yourself as like a creative person an artist um where where do you see yourself on that scale uh i definitely like to think of myself as a creative because even though writing is my main mode of creative expression at the moment. Um, I am not necessarily locked into it. I actually studied uh, voice uh, for a long time, classical voice, and I was a singer and a musician and I played the clarinet and I also played the piano terribly. (laughs) Um, And sometimes I draw terribly, but but yeah, so I I think of myself like as just like a creative artist, um, even though like my mode of art is mostly right now limited to the realm of writing. So what do you think is is your what is your radioactive spider bite? <laughs> what do you think is your either either origin story or what what sort of feeds your flame? Well, I think that it, part of it was just having a family in which it was okay to be a sort of weird artistic person, even though not everybody in my family was, but I had a very encouraging family. And so, yeah, I was just able to do whatever. And like, I I have all these clear and embarrassing memories of my mother coming home from work and me being like, you have to watch me do this dance that I saw on television. And so I would like, I would have recorded like some dance routine or something that Whitney Houston was doing on VH1. And I'm like, look at me, look at me. And I would do it. And my mother would like, smile and clap for me you know and I was like is when I look back on it I'm like that oh my gosh it's so embarrassing it's terrible and like I remember I did it once in front of like somebody like some friend of hers from work that she brought home and I insisted that they sit there and watch me do this dance (laughs) but but I was always encouraged to to do that to like express you know whatever joy I had in like creating art or doing a dance or singing um 
music was very important in our house, even though nobody else in my family really sings. Um, but there was always music. And so singing for me was sort of a natural extension of um, all that music being around me all the time, which is why I was like, I'm going to be a singer. Uh, that didn't end up working out. But it wasn't because, you know, people in my family were like, you can't do that. Nobody can sing. Um, and And also, I was lucky enough that I got to go to a performing arts school um, starting in middle school because uh, one of the best performing arts schools in the country actually is in the city uh, where I was born. So there were just like, I, I just basically got a lot of opportunities to express myself creatively and was never told that I, I couldn't do that or I couldn't make that my career. Um, and I had so many examples of other people who did, you know, looking at, I lived on MTV and VH1 as a kid. There were always books in our house. I was always encouraged to read. And so I think it just, it, a lot of it just basically comes from that. So what, what brought you to writing? Have you always been a writer? I always loved telling stories. Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, like, even though I had a good aptitude for writing and creating stories, when I auditioned for the uh, performing arts school, I scored really high in creative writing, but for some reason they put me only in the music area. And it was like sort of my first um, experience of somebody being like, well, if you're going to do a creative thing, you have to do just that one thing over there. And so I, um, I was sort of shunted into just the music part, um, even though I scored really high in the creative writing, but I always enjoyed writing. And I actually remember um, my English teacher, when I told her I'd gotten into college, she was like, oh, what creative writing program are you going to? I was like, oh, no, I got into college for singing. She kind of looked at me like, hmm. And I'm like, what? Because <laughs> my major in in the creative, uh, in the performing arts school was music but my English teacher was like but you're a writer though and I'm like nah -uh. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it is always funny when when other people see something in you especially as you're sort of growing up and I mean sometimes a lot of the time people are off base but it's also funny when you almost are like you know you're like dang it you know their their prophecy right. <laughs> has been fulfilled how did you know ah um and and so when I got into college and I was studying music, I still was writing, but I was actually learning writing on the internet um, and like writing stuff and going to AOL forums this is how old I am. I went to AOL writing forums <laughs> and um, and like shared my work and, and got feedback and like hung out with other people who were also sharing their work and, and trying to get better and stuff like that. And by the time my college career ended, I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to go on to become a professional uh, singer because my program had sapped all of the joy of singing out of me. Um, and, and it took me a long time to find it again. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to be a singer. I might as well do this writing thing that everybody keeps saying that I should do. Um, and so then I a started... much more stable career. Oh, oh indeed. Indeed. <laughs> um, but it did seem to involve a lot less horrible people that I had to deal with because writing is a very solitary act, right? You sit in your house, you type away or you sit in the cafe and you type away and you, you're in the cafe with other people who are also writing, but you're not talking to each other. And that seems to suit us all just fine. And people <laughs> consume your work uh, and you don't have to have pants on. Right. That's right. And you don't have to look in their faces when they do it. Because, um, man, you got to look at people's faces when you're performing. And if they're bored, you know it. <laughs> you're very well aware of it. Um and and yeah, so I I switched in, in part because I just I wasn't given a, a good impression of the professional world of uh, music. And I just found that I really didn't want to be part of it. Like as much as I love singing, I did not want to be part of the classical voice world. I didn't want to have to deal with that crap. Now, little did I know that there's just as much crap that you have to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> in the world of professional literature. But I think it helps that 
I was not really exposed to the more annoying, terrible parts of that until I was an actual adult, you know, and I had lived some years in the world and, and I was able to better deal with it and know how to handle it. I think that helped a lot because, you know, in the early days of my writing, it was just like me. And then I like found a little writing workshop community and within our community, we're all very supportive and stuff. And so I didn't have to deal with some of the nastier parts of everything um, until I was a little more sure of myself as a person. So what kind of nastier parts do you mean? Well, there's a lot of racism in publishing there's no <laughs> right like shock shock um it's true though there's a lot of racism um there's also a I lot mean it of, would like, be really weird if there was this one tiny bastion where there wasn't right but I like, think sometimes within within the arts community there's this idea that we're above that because we're you know we're enlightened and we're people of the soul and not of the like there's this and and especially with writing, I sometimes feel because you get also all the stuff of like, okay, which stories get told? How do mm-hmm. they get told? By whom? Uh, and also, I mean, because I know that your 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 main field is kind of the sci-fi fantasy world, where really you're like, okay, so you you imagine you know this purple blob with wheels that communicates via gas, mm-hmm. but you cannot imagine. A world where women don't get raped all the time, right. or where people of color are not either savages or mystical, magical, or whatever. And you're like, okay, that's 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 interesting. That imagination has all these weird little gaps. Yes, yes, and that's like the thing that I I began to be like, oh, this is what we have to deal with, huh? Okay, um, and and I was sort of lulled into a sense of complacency because yeah that the the idea that any of that is a problem is definitely not presented by the majority of people um in literary communities they're like no no nobody has these prejudices anymore nobody ever did in our part of the world we're open-minded we're science fiction writers like (laughs) my favorite thing is when when writers and readers sometimes are like well you know it's just that's that's what's realistic. That's what history was like. Kind of, you know, Lex Game of Thrones. We were like, oh, history with dragons? Mm-hmm. That history? Mm-hmm. Uh, people are like, well, you know, that's that's just what would be historically correct. And it's like on this other planet mm-hmm. and long, you know, far, far away and possibly in the future, possibly in the past. We don't know. All right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. The, cool, the cool, place cool. with all the, you know, like zombie snowmen. Uh-huh. Yeah historical accuracy is very important. And, and what's, you know, I remember the first time I encountered somebody who in all seriousness was like, well, to be historically accurate when talking about Game of Thrones. And I was like, are you aware, friend, (laughs) that Game of Thrones does not take place in history? Are you aware that it's a made up world? Are you? And, and it's, but like, this is the thing that like you'll have some people cling to it like but historically it's like "Mm -hmm." and historically when the dragons came oh wait (laughs) but no um and and it is like a cognitive dissonance i think for some people because yeah they're like willing to accept "Mm -hmm, dragons mm -hmm, white walkers mm -hmm," you like wardrobes that open up into a forest they're willing to accept all these things but they're not willing to accept that, you know, yeah, women don't have to be raped and brown people can exist or they can exist not as savages or whatever. And so it's it's always just an interesting thing to see like where the where the edges of the map are for some people. Um and and partly it's because they have been trained to see the edges of the map differently than others. Like, you know, fantasy does do that. It, like if you read earlier fantasies um, before more women and more people of color were allowed into the publishing mayu, then yeah, or they were like could publish under their own names or could publish <laughs> under their own names. Yes, then you have uh, a lot of fantasy worlds in which like there's dragons, there's this, but like all the social structures are 
the same as you would imagine. It's like, it, you know, it's all part of the imagined past. Because the other thing is, is that beyond the fact that like, guess what? Dragons didn't exist in, in history is the... That we know of. Well, that we know of. I mean, you know, there was St. George. But, but there's also the part where even their conception of what history is, is incorrect. They're like, well, but there weren't brown people. There actually there were. How do we know? Because look at the art. Um, look at and the- tons of written stories, and also like, no, 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 this was not a slave girl. This was a part of the family. I mean, why she came to England is another story, but she right. was a beloved part of the family. Right. She had her own money. She had her own home. Like, and yes, again, it's problematic how people got to Europe. But even then, not always. Some yeah. people came of their own accord with their own money. Yeah. So it's like there are all these incorrect ideas about what's going on and they're all based on that. Yeah, I don't know. There's there's just so much weirdness where people decide what is historically accurate and a lot of the times it's based on what other writers and other movies have decided is historically correct yes. for whatever period you think this is, you know, yes. an analog to, which is, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, it all goes back to like the core thing that I've been talking about for the past 10 years at this point is like the power of narrative. And it's a thing that, so writers understand, creators understand the power of narrative. But I think that like a lot of times we, we don't think about the ramifications of the power of narrative. Um, Just the fact that like, there are so many people who think they know what was going on in medieval times because they have received a narrative that told them this, this, and this, and they're, and, and because those narratives, when they were put into book form or when they were put into visual form, you only saw white people. They're like, well, this is how it must've been. Um, And you know, the, having only the only narratives about black people that you know are narratives about slavery or about oppression so you're like okay well then there was slavery and oppression the only narratives you know about native americans come from westerns um and to the point where you know then you get things like people in real life in real actual life saying things like well native americans don't exist anymore because they were all wiped out it's like what are you even talking about and they'll say this to a Native American who's standing in front of them. And they're like, well, you can't be Lakota because Native Americans don't exist anymore. And people are like, I, what, I, huh? Really? Which is even more what? interesting when that the narrative can, for instance, in this case, at the same time be, oh, they were all wiped out. And, well, we didn't really do anything wrong. They just kind of died out and disappeared and also we gave them reservations and it was great right right like they went off into the west like the elves they were just like oh we're mystical and magical and we don't like it here anymore so we're gonna and go kind of kind of also like if if you if you're talking about sort of the the middle ages there's also be, not just that the stories focus on white people but the stories focus on the sort of non-specific central europe mm-hmm. where it's like i mean you know being part of the sort of you know nordic slavic um potato farming stock that I am, I still know uh, very clearly that other parts of the world, much further south, were in a lot of cases way ahead of us in Mm. a lot of things. Um, But there's this idea of what were the dark ages, and that's just objectively like sort of kind of like Game of Thrones winter, that everybody is at the same place because there's no way that someone who's not of the English court or possibly a Swedish scientist can cannot know something can't be the first to discover something yeah exactly i've actually been um watching a lot of documentaries lately and one documentary i've watched is called britain ad but if you like search for it on youtube it's called king arthur's britain which is very interesting like the way it's differently branded um for for different broadcast but the main thrust of this documentary was an archaeologist challenging the sort of default view of English history where he's like, so like what we're taught in school is that, you know, the Romans came and they invaded. And then at some point the Romans were like, well, goodbye. And like the lights all went out in Britain. Like they just were like, we're leaving switch. And it was like dark ages until these other people, the Anglo-Saxons came along and then suddenly civilization restarted again. And that view of history is based on literally Victorian ideas of what was going on in the past and not necessarily based on archaeological knowledge, but just like 
just Victorian ideas. And one thing that, that he pointed out is he said, you know, the Victorians who were, who were becoming antiquarians and who were sort of starting the discipline of what we now call archeology, span um, they were all uh, imperialists, right? They were all super into their empires and super into the, we're bringing civilization to the savages. And so it was in their best interest and part of their worldview that when an empire leaves, everything collapses. So the empire must stay like that was their literal mindset. And so they had an agenda for conceptualizing the end of the Roman era in Britain as they turned out the lights and it was a dark ages until civilization came back in the form of Roman uh, Catholic Christianity. And, but that's not actually the case. And not only was there no evidence for that, but like now that we have better archaeological tools, um, such as the ability to like trace DNA and um, look under the soil without having to dig. And, you know, all the technology that we have for archaeology now is is rewriting those ideas. Um, but, but I think that's again, like with the narratives, one thing that's super important in that is archaeology also became accessible to uh, to women, to mm-hmm. non-white people, to people of different classes, because that's where you also get so many of these amazing realizations where, you know, uh, one example that I think has been going around Facebook for years is like uh, a man might look at a piece of bone with 28 hatches on it and be like, that's interesting. I wonder why. And a woman's like, gee, yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> Maybe it's a menstrual thing. Or you know, someone who knows about tanning hides or about making pottery will tell you that, oh, no, no, these tools are not what you think they are. And someone who is actually interested in textiles would be like, oh, this is a really interesting find about knitting and so on. Like, it's not just who is telling the story and what story they want to tell. It's also what knowledge do they even go go into it with? Like, it's, it's one yeah. thing where you have you know, people going like, oh, no, there's no homosexuality in animals. It's all aggression or greetings <laughs> because that's the, that's the story they want to tell. And like hyenas are horrible and ugly because it's a matriarchy and that's not normal. But then you also just have, you know, if, if you don't if you don't understand, I don't know what the equivalent would be here, birds, you're not going to see different kinds of behavior. And it's the yeah. same like with narratives and this was not on purpose, but it's bringing it around really, really well to the writing the other uh, classes that you take, where it is about like, you you don't know what you don't know. And that's where it can be really good to, you know, check yourself. Yeah. Both for the little things be like, okay, I need to bring in, I need to bring in an architect, but like, I need someone to fact check this, but also maybe just like, you know, probability check this. Because mm-hmm. you you can see. So where did where did you why did you start teaching both writing the other and and teaching writing in general? Um, I've oddly enough, I've actually been teaching writing for a really long time, even though technically I shouldn't have been. Like way back in two thousand and one or two thousand and two, I I got a gig at uh, an online school teaching novel writing, and I'd never written a novel. I don't really know how I got away with that. Um, <laughs> I think they were just like desperate for people to do stuff. And I remember people being like, you're a really good teacher. I was able to do this stuff. And I was like, that's good. I haven't written a novel yet, but you go um, and you have your good time. And I'm super excited for you. Uh, I'm not going to make the those who can't teach joke. (laughs) But sometimes, sometimes it really is like you can tell someone else all the things that you just can't quite make yourself do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was, you know, I was standing on the shoulders of giants. I would be like, read this book by this person. Let's talk about it. Um, and so I, I actually got involved with writing the other because I read the book writing the other that's written by Nisi Shaw and Cynthia Ward. And I was like, this is amazing. And even though, and this is one of the things that I, I also talk about when I'm, when I'm like, everybody should come take our class is that, you know, I'm a black woman. So I understand some of the things about some of the pitfalls involved in writing people outside of yourself, because I have been the audience for things that were written terribly about people who are allegedly supposed to be like me. And I'm like, this is so wrong. Um, But at the same time, that book also opened my eyes to all the ways in which I don't understand how that works for some, for identities that are outside of my own. Um, And so I always like, love the book and and I used it myself as like a way to try to 
um, create frameworks for understanding other people and, and to be careful and not just assume that I know because I'm like, well, I'm marginalized. So therefore, but I'm not like marginalized in every single way. Or I saw that be. movie that one time. So right. I know. Right. Because I, the thing, totally the thing is also like when, when you, if you read a book that's, you know, either the whole book or parts of it deal with something that you know about, it can be hilarious. Like sometimes it's like, okay, so not, that's not how knitting works. Or for some reason, people like to write Swedes, and most of the time it comes out hilarious, but that doesn't have the same power dynamic. You know, like, I, I as a Swede, am not systematically oppressed mm-hmm. on the whole, you know? Uh, so you have, like, several layers, not just that it's, it should feel, you know, real and correct, but where it's also like, are you also upholding something? Are you upholding a structure or a stereotype? Uh, and are you are you going to teach the person who reads that book what the capital T truth is? And and are they going to keep, you know, telling that story when they read a book or even just sit next to someone at a dinner party? Like, yeah. I I am not dehumanized if someone, you know, makes a joke about Swedish accents or about stinky fish. Maybe a little. No, I'm, you know, I'm not like that's that's a very important thing to remember that it's important to get things right. But sometimes it is also about, you know, who gets to who gets to take what place in the narratives that kind of make up the whole big narrative. Yeah. I mean, there are some places where you have to be more careful and more cautious. You have to be more aware of um, not treading into to stereotypes that are actively going to harm. Um, and so, yeah, we, we try to do, we try to address both, you know, cause you, cause yes, it, it may not be structurally harmful to you for people to make jokes about Swedish accents and, and smelly fish, but at the same time, it's like, do you really want to write a book in which there's a, a Swedish person with a terrible accent and they're talking about smelly fish, like in this way, like, because cliches, uh, stereotypes are cliches and who wants to freaking deal in cliches like ever. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's another thing we try to emphasizes that you know this writing writing sensitively writing um with greater representation um and writing representation that isn't based on stereotypes is good writing writing cliches and stereotypes is not good writing it's just not like anything else aside you know if you're dealing in cliches then you're dealing in like crappy writing so you don't want to do that like you want to write well and then you also have the extra layer of you want to write in such a way that doesn't do active harm. Um, and the people who are most harmed by bad representation are people from marginalized identities, but you don't want to do harm basically to anybody really, unless it's like somebody that is, um, that, that you feel is doing harm to others. Like I don't mind doing harm to Nazis with my depiction of Nazis. Sorry. Um, but, but I'll allow it. Right. But like Nazis are act- out there actively causing harm. So I'm, I'm cool with being like, Nope, I'm going to harm you with my ideas about how you're terrible, but you don't want to do that to people who aren't out there doing harm, who are being harmed. You know, and it's and it's one of those things where a lot of bad faith arguments want to be like, it's intolerant for you to not tolerate my intolerance. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. So and sometimes it's like, yeah, I'm OK with that. And and sometimes <laughs> it's sometimes it's like at the same time harmful and hilarious, like people writing fat characters mm-hmm. is, you know, it can be painful. And I think for a lot of people reading that. It is harmful to fat people reading. It's harmful to other people who will see specific numbers and take them to heart and be like, the worst thing that could happen is to go above this number. Mm-hmm. But then I, I kind of you know, love hate when even super big, successful, famed, beloved writers are like, oh, my God, she weighed 163 pounds no, or she was a size 14. Oh, no. And then... And then equate that with, you know, getting into a car and the car dipping really low to the ground. We were like, oh my God. <laughs> I, w- okay. And, or, yeah. you know, like they don't understand how sizing works because they're just like numbers. Um, and that's where you almost can't really be harmed because it's so ridiculous. But it's still like, what what are you doing with this character? What is the point of this enormous blob of giantess mm-hmm. like what what did what purpose are they actually actually serving yeah 
and it, and again it goes back to like you know the narratives that are created by authors who do stuff like that it's like she was 163 pounds and rolled down the street and you're like you don't know what it's like to be 163 pounds i'm telling you right now you don't know because you just described that in the most stupid way imaginable um but then yeah it, like it causes like this this thing in the reader where it's like oh my god 163 pounds ha huh? but it's but you know it's like it's no, like it's, it's incorrect. And also now you're giving other people like incorrect information and you're like making them like have, have incorrect ideas about how things work for people, for humans. Right. Um, so yeah, like it, you know, it, and this is one of the reasons that I have really loved doing the work that I do when we started um, moving these classes online. Cause basically I just proposed to, to Nisi Shaw's like, let's do these classes online because she and Cynthia had been doing seminars, um, at cons when, when they were both at, at the same convention or when they were invited somewhere, but they hadn't really like moved it online. I was like, it'll be more accessible if we can like give it to more people if we do it online. Um, and, and in sort of building that out, we've been able to bring in people to talk about those specific things because, you know, we, we provide a sort of very, very in-depth, but generalized framework for talking about this stuff. But then we're not Native American. Neither of us is deaf or blind. Neither of us is um, transgender, et cetera, et cetera. So we were able to bring in people who um, were able to talk about very specific things like that in master classes, um, which has been so beneficial to me personally, because I've learned a great deal, um, like sitting in on these classes, you know, to facilitate them. Uh, and the one that, uh, we just recently recorded was one on fat characters. Um, it's taught by Marianne Kirby and Meg Elison. And, you know, there are a lot of things that you know, the other thing is like, even when it's an identity that I am, you know, familiar with, like I consider myself to be a fat person, but I am not a, uh, a person who has gone deep into fat activism and media criticism around fat characters and the way that fat characters are depicted and whatever, the way that Meg and Marianne have. And so I learned things um, that I'm like, oh yeah, I should just make sure I don't include that. Or yes, it's true that I never think about that when I think about my character's body type or whatever. Um, so yeah. Because that's where you also, something that I think is really important that sometimes writing about the other can can also sort of involve writing about the self because mm -hmm. you know, just because you're part of a marginalized community doesn't mean that you're somehow immune to all of the things that society teaches us about different groups. Yes. You can still write stereotypes and cliches or even just not think about the names or adjectives or verbs that you use for certain groups because they're so sort of ingrained in you. Yeah. And this is why sensitivity readers are so important. Um, you know, a lot of times my students ask, well, like, do I really need to hire a sensitivity reader? Because I have a friend who's, and I'm like, okay, and that's cool. And maybe your friend is aware of these things, but you know, your friend might not be super into having delved into media and, um, and literature and, and knows all the examples and understands all the different structures of harm and can, and can give bring you that level of expertise because they're just there are levels of expertise even in experience of identity um and so sensitivity readers are people who have done that thinking have done that research or or just have delved into it and so they can give you a really good um you know a, a good in-depth place to come from when they say here are the tropes that you know you're you're involving yourself in, even if you don't know it, probably even better than that friend you have that may also be from that identity, but who hasn't really thought about these things deeply. Because it's not everybody's job to think about these things deeply. And let me tell you, it's exhausting. <laughs> Being a person who has to think about these things deeply is very exhausting. And it's not something that everybody wants to get into or has the, the energy for. Um, and so this is, again, why I just feel like sensitivity readers specifically are so very important. I mean, it's always good, yes, to have a wide variety of people in your beta reading pool because everybody's going to notice something different and that's awesome and everybody's going to come from a different place. But once you're about like, okay, we're going to publish this, you got to have a sensitivity reader. You know, people accept that you need editors for tons of things, you know, to you have, you know, a fact checker or whatever. I sometimes use my husband as a sort of neurotypical sensitivity reader because mm -hmm. I'm autistic. And sometimes I'm like, 
not just does this email make sense, which I also sometimes need help with, but just like, does this come off rude? Because Mm -hmm. I can't necessarily see that the same way that I can't see my own biases or, you know, the fact that I, the same way that I might overuse, you know, parentheses, I also overuse certain words for certain types of people or whatever. And it's so funny that when it comes to kind of the same way that you're like, well, you know, we're, we're artistic people, we can't be bad people. It's also like, well, it's always my right to tell the story that I want, but only when it comes to talking about certain groups of people. Otherwise, you know, editors will, you know, slice and dice. And to be fair, not all writers like that, but so many other things writers will accept to change, to move, to juggle around. But if someone says, you know what, you don't talk about this person from group X in a very good way. Is that, you know, an artistic choice? Or and and for some reason that's where it's like because people immediately think that says I think at least people think that means, you know, you're racist, you're sexist, you're whatever. Where it's just like, no, you just maybe didn't think that much about this part because it wasn't a huge part of your book. Yeah. You know? Yeah, getting people past the uh defensive reaction to being told this this is a problem and they're like, but I'm not a bad person. It's like, I didn't say you're a bad person. I just said that you did this thing in a problematic way. How dare you? Okay. Now you're a bad person (laughs) because now you're (laughs) arguing with me about this instead of just being like, okay, how do I fix it? Um, Yeah. Because again, it can't just be like, you know what? You don't have to use 50 different synonyms for the word said. Sometimes people just say things. It's okay. Yeah. It's yeah. And it's, it's always interesting because the, that I, I love that particular fight because it, it reveals so many things about a person um, <laughs> when they're like, but no, you're like, okay, now look, <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to say all these other things. It's, it's all right. Um, and, and it also doesn't help when like famous authors do it and they're like, well, I would be like famous author. I'm like famous author was not being edited by that point. And that's why there is a line in one of the later Harry Potter books where it's like something, something, something Ron ejaculated. And I was like, what Mm -hmm. he did? What now? I'm sorry. Who? Excuse me. You know, aside from sort of being, I don't know, an aware writer, Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a, sounds like a pointed question but like can you can you teach writing can you teach someone to be either a writer at all or a better writer like not like hey what do you do what you do sounds stupid (laughs) just like because it's not always a given I think and people have really different opinions on that thoughts that was a very bad question (laughs) (laughs) no that's okay no it, it totally makes sense I I do fall in the camp that it is possible to teach writing because it's possible to teach craft and understanding of craft and how to build a craft skill. Um, what can't be taught necessarily is talent, but I, I also don't necessarily feel that like talent has to be inherent, right? It's like it, because talent is all about like your point of view on the world. Um, and, and whatever way you find that you can easily express or most joyfully express your view on the world, like that is, is what the kernel of talent is to me. Um, and I used to think that, you know, you, you either have the talent or you don't for whatever artistic thing. Like I would not necessarily say that I have a talent for dancing, um, I don't really have, I'm one of the few black people in the world who didn't have rhythm. Uh, I inherited that from my father who also didn't have rhythm, but what I inherited from my mother was that I know I don't have rhythm, so I don't dance in front of other people. Not like my dad. Um, <laughs> and of course he's going to hear that. And he's going to call me and be like, how dare you? Um, but I think that's a dad gene <laughs> in general. It's like, can't dance, sir. Um, and and also like i i really struggle when it comes to drawing because i'm like i can't make my hand do that thing that i want i want to do in my head and i i get like frustrated and angry about that but i also know that like a lot of that is 
that I haven't done the training. I haven't sat down and sketched a bunch and learned like shading and stuff for that. And guess what? I actually kind of don't want to. I would rather spend that energy learning how to do writing craft better. You know, it's all about like where you want to put your energy, right? Like even people who are like, oh, I can't sing. It's like, actually, you could sing if you put in the time to actually learn like how to use your breath to stay on the note and how to do whatever. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be Maria Callas because guess what? Most singers, even professional singers are not Maria Callas. Like it's just, they just can't. Right. Um, but, but there are ways that you can learn to like be a decent singer. And I've been reading a lot and thinking a lot lately about the idea that there is a certain point, especially in, American society and I don't know if this is true of like western society sort of in general um or if this is like a a particularly American thing but we we have this idea that if you cannot do art in a way that is commercially viable then you don't have talent as an artist and that is bullpucky and and it's been really hard getting away from that notion that you have to do art at a level that would make you commercially successful as long as you got it in front of the right people in order to be able to like do that art at all. Like do crappy art, like do it. Just like draw things that aren't right, quote, right. Yeah. And I think also sometimes <laughs> talent people think either, like you're saying, like you have to be good enough for other people to love it enough to give you money. But I think also there's this idea that, talent is kind of equated with genius mm, that mm-hmm. like you have to be you know super talented like as a writer everything has to be sort of complex and brilliant and I mean we forget that a lot of times editors were what made that book readable yeah um but but just that like sometimes some people's talent is just like churning out detective stories and that doesn't get any respect and we don't think of that as a talent uh, like f- for me, it's a huge talent to be able to let go of a story mm-hmm. and just be like, this is good enough. This is publishable. This is what people want. You know, you have a talent for doodles and that is also a talent to be able to capture something in a few strokes, but you maybe don't have the patience or the sort of mind for really detailed portraiture. Mm-hmm. And I think that when people are like, well, I don't have the talent to sit down and pound out, you know, and and king lear in isolation it's like okay but maybe your talent is writing facebook posts that very succinctly capture the thing that everyone is feeling right now and making them feel better you know what i mean like yes there's so many different talents in art and it's not about genius and it's not about marketability necessarily even if you're a commercially viable artist maybe you just like you you make landscapes that people like you catch you capture them and like I said maybe you just know when to be enough yes and also it's totally fine to do art that isn't that isn't even talented just like I enjoy doing this and I'm just gonna do it and that's actually okay and like and telling people that like telling people it's okay for you to do that art that isn't you know perfect best talented whatever as long as you enjoy doing it as long as you're like as long as you're having a good time as long as you're it brings you joy um but yeah like just the whole idea that you have to like be at a certain level in order for you know your art to be considered art is is a capitalist one we don't want that no more capitalist ideas boo to capitalist ideas um because you know if if everybody had listened to those capitalist ideas there would be so much less cool art in the world i mean i think about xkcd you know the web comic and like what the heck is that it's it's literally it's literally stick figures like and and it has been like how many years since russell monroe has been drawing that and it's like he hasn't necessarily gotten like made those stick figures any more sophisticated than they were 10 years ago or whatever he started right like those stick figures are still freaking stick figures but guess what like that comic is brilliant and it's brilliant mostly because of the writing but also because he's like you know he he made a decision about how that thing was going to look based on what he felt that he could do and what ideas that he was trying to get out there. And he didn't allow his, his, I don't even know if he has the ability because I literally have never had a conversation, but like say he's unable to draw a realistic quote, you know, cartoon character with a face. It don't matter. The fact that they don't have faces and yet you understand everything about those characters is like, that's, that's freaking brilliant. That's super brilliant. It took two, it took, took two appearances 
of the figure with the hat for you to now just right. see a hat as sneaky. Right. Right. It's amazing. I got to see him speak uh, at a you know, at a technical museum here in Stockholm um, this fall. And it's just it's so funny because like he, you know, with some of the stuff he's done when he when he wrote How Stuff Works, you know, like he called um, Colonel Chris Hadfield, the astronaut, to talk about like how hard would it be to land a plane and like they just went overall like he he just he goes into things mm-hmm. and that's his thing like he he is interested in things and he's interested in condensing them for people and that is a huge talent that right. is that is amazing right but imagine if somebody had been like well you can't do that you can't just have these stick figures saying these things uh, you know it's not real art like imagine if he had listened to somebody who said that to him like then we wouldn't have xkcd we wouldn't have you know how stuff works like we wouldn't have all these things right and i think that that's that's really you know the thing that i love about the time that we're living in now not this exact time because mm, but sort of our modern world right the world that i became an adult in is that there are so many more examples of people doing things that I am sure that had they tried to do them like it, you know, just 10 years before somebody been like, you can't do that. Like somebody makes a YouTube channel where they just do piano covers of Mario, um, super Mario brothers music. I'm sure somebody somewhere would have been like, that is a waste of time. That is a waste of your time. Well, guess what? No, it wasn't because then that dude became the guy who put together postmodern jukebox and postmodern jukebox is amazing. Um, do, yeah. Like somebody who's like, I'm just going to make covers of pop songs. So they sound like things that come from bygone eras. Somebody somewhere was probably like, that's a stupid waste of your time. Guess what? No, it wasn't. Um, learning. Uh, I love the, um, the band Emperor Norton's stationary marching band, which, you know, they have a steampunk vibe and, but it's people playing like marching band music um, from, I, I don't even know what the era is, but it's like, somebody's like, you want to put together a band where everybody dresses up in steampunk clothing and they play like marching band music from 50 years ago. That's so stupid. Like, why would you waste your time doing that? They're amazing. Right. And, and, and they have fun. Cause what I think fun. is also so f- what I think is so fascinating about this, um, the the era of silica, uh, is that at the same time where things become so much more accessible and easy to share, we also sometimes forget what the actual numbers mean. Where it's like, well, obviously this video was a failure if it only got, say, I don't know, fifteen hundred views. But then you're like, but imagine fifteen hundred people in a room. Right. If fifteen hundred people came to a free show that you were playing or a talk that you were giving or whatever it might be. That's huge. Like imagine even 300 people, 50 people in a room who are there and, you know, giving you a literal thumbs up, mm-hmm. a physical one and applauding. That's huge. Yeah. Uh, and, and yes, if you want to do it, you know, for a career or you want to go viral, whatever, yeah, that's something else. But it's not like, well, that was a waste of time. No, 400 people saw it. 70 people saw it and were happy after they saw it. That's yeah. magical. It is magical. Like, it's just magical the way that we can, like, have, share what we do and have other people, like, love and appreciate it. Um, It's, that's one of the best things about the modern era, I feel. Um, And because it, because then it opens up all these other avenues for artistic expression, like all these ways in which people can make money doing like this weird stuff that makes them joyful. Um, it can also make them money and it doesn't matter whether it can or not, but I feel like, yeah, we're in an era where like the weird stuff that you're doing actually can be commercially viable. If you decide that that's like the route that you want to take. Um, sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes you're just doing it. And then suddenly you have like 1500 people, in your living room, <laughs> you know, virtually being like, we love this so much. Do more of it. Can we give you money for that? Here, here's a dollar. Take this dollar. So yeah, that's what it's like to be, be a creative person now. And there's a lot of hard things about being a creative person now, but oh my gosh, there's so many awesome things about being a creative person now. So yay. If, if we're talking about when, when, when you write, what's, what's your favorite thing about writing? Um, my most favorite thing is when I am able to get across the thing that I'm trying to get across 
to an audience. Um, and sometimes it happens by mistake and sometimes it happens on purpose. And the more I work at this, the more I'm able to do it on purpose. Uh, and I used to just want to like write cool stories and be like, Oh, I have this idea. I want to put it down on paper and exactly the way it is in my head and how it never comes out exactly how, I don't know. Um, but but now because it's, it's the same as with drawing. When you're right. writing, you also can't do hands right. Right. And you're like, I don't understand the fingers. Um, but but every now and then I will I will write something and then I'll read what somebody says about it. And I'm like, yes, you got it exactly. And I love that part of it because, you know, the more that I write, the more that I'm understanding that I'm like expressing not only my view of how the world is, but how I want the world to be. Um, and I want other people to want that as well. So, so then like seeing other people get excited about that makes me extremely happy. Um, and I used to shy more away from putting so much of myself in my work or like the things that I hope for. Um, but I don't do that anymore because I, I found that I, I actually am happy to do that, but also I, I crave it now. Um, so, you know, writing science fiction and fantasy allows me to write all kinds of stuff in like say a secondary world or an alternate past or it's the future or whatever. But, um, the book that I recently finished that is, uh, wending its way to editors right now is a, a middle grade novel where, I, I set it in the neighborhood where I grew up and I based the community and family structure on my community and family structure from when I was a kid. And it's set slightly in the future because it's, it's set in a world that I hope exists someday soon. And when where I gave it- we can go outside. Where we can leave the house. Um, and so I, I gave it to people and- overwhelmingly the response was sort of exactly what I was hoping for where people are like this is so cool like I love this kid I love this voice I love the world that she lives in I love her parents and her grandma um and and you know it's like I just I love all these things about it and they're the things that I wanted people to love about it and so that filled me with joy because then I was like, okay, I achieved the thing that I was, I was hoping for, which was to make people fall in love with this world that I want to see, um, that this, this future that I want to happen. That is really, really beautiful. And I was going to ask you about challenges, but now I'm not gonna, cause I really like going out <laughs> on just that happiness. You know, I, I joked about going outside, but I had this discussion with a lot of writer friends on Facebook recently where it's like, so for the next like five years, our book's just going to be set in 2019 because you <laughs> never know what the world is going to look like when your book is published right because like how nothing in books right now like makes sense like I you know you watch tv and you're like people are sitting close to each other that's really <laughs> weird you're not supposed to do that what are those people doing shaking hands no no people very quickly that became very unnormal mm -hmm. uh, so if people want to know more about you and the things you do where should they go a look in uh, you can go to my website, uh, ktempestbradford.com. And from there, you can find pretty much everything. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, and I have a Patreon. And even if you just like Google my name, ktempestbradford, most of that stuff will come up. My Wikipedia page will come up. I have a Wikipedia page. Oh, my God. Um, and so, yeah, that's basically how you find me. And I will, of course, link to... Uh, all, all of the channels and a bunch of other stuff that we talked about, um, the show notes are at really.fm slash make do. We are make do pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we will be back in a fortnight. Uh, thank you so much, K Tempest Bradford, for joining us. Um, until then, go make and do and write and ask someone if you're unsure. <laughs>